Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time here, my name is John. I am the lead pastor around here. Appreciate you guys coming on out. I want to welcome our at-home audience, who of course is not watching this live. Let me just follow up on what Adam said. So I don't know if you've had a chance to watch our online presence since we've been into the museum, but you could best describe it as being subpar, okay? Let me kind of, so we're not unaware of what it looks like the first images sent back from space, okay? Not a good look for a church that's trying to, you know, put a good product out there. Why? Like Adam was saying, our previous gear, which worked so well in the old theater, is simply being dwarfed by the size of this room. And now that the museum has installed Ethernet in this room for us, and it's the first time in 25 years they've had internet in this room, we can now live stream. And once that is up and running, we can begin, this whole team, they've been working for the last five weeks putting together new gear for us to get to make the online experience top notch. So it, I cannot wait for all that to happen next week. But back to the things at hand. So this um, week we're continuing our series that we've been calling The Road Ahead. And where last week, today, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be taking a look at the life and the journeys of Paul. Now, Paul is this guy who wrote over half of the New Testament. We look to Paul almost weekly for his wisdom to help us understand Jesus at a greater level and to put Jesus' teachings into practice in our life. But one of my fears has always been that if we don't know Pearl, uh, Paul personally, we might begin to think of him as just a guy that writes some quotes. These are just you know little sound bites that we throw up on the screen, but our hope is that this series will allow us to put ourselves into his shoes, to see what he saw, experience what he experienced, meet the people that he met, and the hope is that this will bring a greater richness to the scripture that he wrote. So last week, just to kind of recap very briefly if you weren't here, last week we kind of began at the beginning and we met Paul as to where he first sort of made his entree into the New Testament scene. And we took a look at an encounter that is famously known as the Damascus Road experience. Now, this took place around 34 AD, so we're talking maybe three, six months after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you remember, at this time, Paul wasn't a Christian. In fact, Paul's main goal in life was to persecute Christians, and if you want to find out why he did that, go to our website, listen to last week. We don't need to get into all that again today. But on this journey to a town called Damascus, he met the risen Messiah, and Jesus was in the glory of heaven. And all of a sudden, in that moment, Paul realized that Jesus wasn't a fraud. He was real. He wasn't dead. In fact, he was alive, which meant that what Jesus said was true. And he was who he claimed to be, namely the Son of God and the Savior of this world. And in that moment, on that dusty road to Damascus, Paul became a Christian. And from that point forward, he dedicated his life to traveling the world, spreading the news of Jesus Christ. So this week, kind of looking at scripture, and I was trying to decide where's our next step on this journey? What's the next thing that we should kind of look at in his life that would be interesting um, for us? And I found a really cool story that took place around 51 AD, so timetable, okay? The Damascus Road, that happened around 34 AD. So we're now about 15 years 
later. And a lot has taken place, just to kind of put this on your radar. In this 15 years, Paul has gone on what I'll call his first official duty into the city of Antioch, and he worked at a church there. And it was at this particular church in Antioch where Christians first got the name Christian. So that's kind of cool. Additionally, Paul got involved in what was known as the Jerusalem Council, and you can read about that in Acts 15. And essentially at this Jerusalem Council, all the big wigs in Christianity came together to sort of hash out once and for all some of the major theological points of our belief system. And so you could say at this point, Christian theology was settled science to such a degree. And then lastly, Paul survives what would be his first public stoning. And you gotta love it when it's like your first public stoning. This is the first one. He made it through that. A lot more to come. So he's been busy over the last 15 years. But today, we find him on what scripture calls his second missionary trip. And this starts off in the book of Acts, chapter 16. Now, when you start reading the beginning of this chapter, before it gets to where we're gonna land today, what you see is that Paul's journey was actually guided by the Holy Spirit. He had all of these plans about where he wanted to go. I want to go to this city. I want to go to this town. And yet what he would say is that the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. These are his words, okay? So he's like, you know what? I want to go to Tarsus, random city. And on our way there, the spirit of Jesus actually prevented us from going there. And so we wanted to go here. And all along the way, he just kept getting stopped. His plans weren't working. And it, it made me wonder about my own life and yours, but have you ever kind of felt like that? Like, you got a plan. You're trying to accomplish something. I want to do this. I want to do that. And it just seems like you keep getting these roadblocks that stop your plans. Well, more times than not, that's the Holy Spirit coming into your life, saying, this is not my will for your life. I, I know you want to do this. I know you think this is a good idea. I know you want to, you know, be with this person or make this move or go to this job. And yet you just keep hitting these roadblocks that's the Holy Spirit saying, this thing that you're trying to do, it's not in your best interest. So we need to be paying attention to those closed doors because they're closed for a reason. So after a series of closed doors in Paul's travel, he finds himself going to a city called Philippi. And if you've been in church any length of time, you would know this city because Paul would eventually write a letter back to them, and it's called Philippians. We off, someone's got it. There we go. Check mark for the day. So the story that I'm going to walk you through today is wild. I mean, it is. There's demonic forces. There's greed. There's political intrigue. And yet God uses all of this for his glory. Now, the story kicks off Acts 16. We'll start in about verse 16. It says this. One day, as we, he's got traveling partners, as we were going down to the place of prayer. Let me just stop here. So on Paul's journey, whenever he would get into a new city or a new town, the very first stop that he would make would be go to the Jewish synagogue. He'd go there first, and he would just start preaching right to those people, primarily because they're the ones who would have the best grasp of the scriptures. However, in Philippi, as we're going to see later, there were very few Jews. In fact, there was a lot of anti-Jewish sentiment in this city. So there was no Jewish synagogue in this city for him to go to. And so he finds this place of prayer, as he calls it. And theologians believe this is probably just sort of some pagan prayer ground. So he goes there, 
and he meets somebody. It says, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. And she earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. So as I've told you during the week, I run this message with Christina to make sure it makes sense, all this kind of stuff. Well, don't fall into the same trap she fell into this week, okay? This slave girl is not earning money towards her master's degree, okay? This is, <laughs> this is not, she's not telling fortunes because she's going for an MBA at night school, okay? This is, her master's, we're talking like pimp slave owners. That's what she's kind of dealing with here. Um, let me say something else. At the risk of sounding crazy, uh, I'm going to say something publicly here that I often will tell friends or, or family. But because this particular story tees up the conversation, I, I think this is a perfect time for us to have this discussion. If you're a Christian, frankly, if you're anybody, but if you're a Christian or you're Jewish, you should not go to a psychic, a fortune teller, a spiritual medium, or use a Ouija board. A couple of reasons why. Number one, if they're frauds, which most likely they are, if they're frauds, you've just lost your money. But if they're real, Scripture's very clear. Their powers do not come from God. In fact, their powers come from someplace much darker. Now, often we view these things as just harmless fun. Oh, John, lighten up. Okay, we're just trying to have some fun, all right, would you? Listen, I understand we all think it's harmless fun, but according to Scripture, these things are entry points into our lives for evil. So I'm not saying this to scare you or sound like a whack job, okay? But as Christians, these things are not for you. So steer clear of them. All right, that's my PSA for the day. It continues. Speaking of this slave girl, it says she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. Not exactly the wording you'd expect coming from a demon-possessed girl, okay? This is not, you sort of expect, you know, spinning heads and projectile green vomiting. You don't expect them to talk about the most high God and being saved. Now, what's going on here? Theologians will let you know that this may appear to be clear for Christians, right? She talks about the Most High God, we think God. She talks about being saved, we think about being saved from your sins. However, this messaging was not clear for the Philippians. She was confusing them with the actual message of Paul. See, she was leading people to believe that the most high God was actually Zeus. And when she talks about how to be saved, she was leading them to believe they were speaking about the Roman idea of being saved, which is health and prosperity. So it all seems innocent on the surface, but she's actually distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this says went on. Day after day, she kept doing this, following him around, until one day Paul lost it, okay? He got so exasperated that he turns around to the demon within her and says, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And instantly, it left. I mean, that had to have been a sight. Well, this sounds like great news, right? I mean, particularly for the girl. Now Paul's got a new problem. It says that her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. That golden goose, gone. Okay? She, she can't do what she used to be able to do, and they can't make money after her anymore. Think about how creepy and eerie this really is. You got two random guys that we don't really know anything about them. 
And somehow they have enslaved a girl that has been possessed by a demon and they exploit this horrific situation for money. I mean, it could be like a Netflix series. It is the creepiest thing. And now Paul has wrecked their income source and they're angry. So they grabbed him. They grab Paul, they grab Silas, that's his traveling companion, and they drag them before the authorities at the marketplace. Basically, they drag them before the local court. And these pimp demon slaveholders begin to make their case. They go, Your Honor, the whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. Now, notice what they didn't say. They didn't say, well, Your Honor, here's the deal. Um, so these guys over here, uh, they exercised the demon from the girl that we had enslaved, and because they got rid of that demon, we can't make money anymore. Is any way you can help us? Obviously, they can't say that. So what do they do? They play on the anti-Jewish sentiment that exists in the city of Philippi. They claim that Paul's promoting some anti-Roman customs in a city that is proudly Roman. Well, that worked. And all of a sudden, a mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas. The city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten and then thrown into prison. Now, the jailer there was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them into the inner dungeon, which I'm sure was a great place, and clamped their feet into the stocks. So let's step back for a second and just kind of examine the situation that we're seeing un unfold before our eyes. You got these two guys, Paul, Silas. There may be more there, but right now we're just dealing with Paul and Silas. They're just trying to serve Jesus, okay? They, they didn't want to go to Philippi, but the Holy Spirit sent them there, so they followed the directions, and they went to Philippi. And they're walking around, and they're just preaching the gospel of Jesus, and, and they're saving people from demon possession. And yet, they're falsely accused, they're beaten, and they're thrown into jail. See, what you're going to see all throughout Paul's journey, and you might see this even in your own life, is that when you try to serve the Lord, evil will push back. It's that simple. When you try to advance the kingdom of God in the world around you, Satan always rears his ugly head. Now it can take on any, you know, many, many forms, but the ultimate goal is to disrupt you, to make you uncomfortable, and to try to get you to stop what you're doing. I've seen it a million times. I mean, I've seen folks who are trying to serve the Lord at a greater level, and all of a sudden, it's, it's now they've got problems at home. All of a sudden, there's this just new tension between them and their spouse, or, or all of a sudden at work, their boss is riding them in a way that they had never, even here. I mean, there were days when we were doing a message that has particular significance. And we got all kinds of tech problems in ways that we never had before. We get all kinds of outbursts on the street with our buddies out there. That all of this is just a distraction and it's trying to make you to stop. But when you feel that pushback, you need to use that as a confirmation that you're on the right path. So our boys, they're in jail. It says that around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. So that's not exactly the behavior you would expect of somebody that's just been thrown in jail, okay? I mean, the first thing these people do when they get to jail is they start praying and they start singing hymns. Meanwhile, 
I was always taught that when you first get into jail, the first thing you do, what do you do? You find the biggest guy and you beat him up, right? Like I could even do that, okay? I might as well find the biggest guy and do his hair or something, okay? <laughs> but, and by the way, can I just say this while I'm up here? Am I the only one who has this fear that one day you're going to land in jail? And I'm always at the airport, okay? And I've got my bags going through the TSA thing, and I'm looking to go on the x-ray, and I go, oh my gosh, is there a gun in there? Did I forget, sweetie, did I put a bomb in this bag? I can't remember, all right? Anyway, that's, I'm off topic. So these guys, they're in jail, and they're praying, and they're singing, and the other prisoners were listening. I mean, in the midst of this jail, in the middle of the night, these prisoners were listening to strangers praise their God in an awful situation. I mean, these guys are bloodied and beaten. They're locked up in stocks in a dungeon. You see, when we as Christians choose to sing in the night, as Paul and Silas did, when we choose to live a life of joy, rather than complaining, about the situation that we find ourselves in. It has the power to impact the people around us because they're listening to you. It's why some of the best ministry can actually happen from a hospital bed. I mean, do you ever visit someone in the hospital and it's not a good scene, but there's just this joy that radiates out of them. And that person in that hospital bed is ministering to the nurses, to the doctors, to the visitors, to the person in the next bed. I mean, it's an amazing, amazing thing when you can radiate joy in the midst of a very difficult circumstance. Later in life, Paul would write a letter back to the Christians in this city. And I have to imagine he was inspired by this incident when he wrote this. I have learned, right? Didn't come naturally. I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, even in the inner dungeon, in stocks, in your city. Whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. You see, you don't have to like your situation. Paul didn't like being in jail. Nobody likes being in a hospital bed. But because of the presence of Jesus Christ in your life, we can find the strength to sing in the night. And that choice to find contentment can impact the lives of the people around you. All right, so these guys, they're chained up. They're singing. When all of a sudden, there was a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundations and all the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. So clearly, this is an earthquake from God. Presumably, the whole place is probably destroyed. I mean, every door's unlocked now. All the handcuffs are off every single prisoner. And then the jailer wakes up. Because he wakes up to see the prison doors wide open. And he assumed the prisoners had escaped. So he drew his sword to kill himself. Why is he going to kill himself? Well, according to Roman law, if you are a guard and you allow prisoners to escape, you will receive the same penalty as an escaped prisoner. I can't imagine that's a good penalty, okay? And so he decides, I'm just going to end it right now. And just before he kills himself, Paul shouts, stop. Don't kill yourself. We are all here. What an amazing scene. 
I mean, picture this, okay? Paul and Silas, they're there. They're looking around at what I'll call the sort of divine devastation. And the circumstances of this whole jail, well, that's said escape. Shackles are off. Doors wide open. Walls down. If it was freedom these men wanted, it was handed right to them. But they see this Roman guard, tears streaming down his face, sword pressed against his belly. And they realize that while the circumstances said escape, love said stay. For the sake of this one guard. They realized there was something more important, more pressing, more needed than their own freedom and their own comfort. And that was love. So they chose to stay. Now the, the jailer, seeing this, calls for the lights. And he ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Silas and Paul. Think about this. This hardened jailer now falls before his very prisoners. And he's trembling He's more affected by the love and the grace shown by Paul and Silas than this earthquake. And he looks up from his knees into the eyes of Paul and Silas. And he asks a question that I don't think anybody saw coming. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? (laughs) What must I do to be saved? Now, Was this question prompted by their singing? Was this a question that this guard has been wrestling with for quite some time? Could it be? Let me just put this out for you. Could it be that God orchestrated all of this? That he closed doors of travel to get Paul to the city of Philippi? That he harnessed an evil spirit and greed, and dirty politics to get Paul and Silas into a jail so that he could answer this question for this man? I think the answer is yes. I think maybe, just maybe, these men found themselves in a city they never wanted to be in, in a jail they never wanted to be in for such a time as this. And I imagine they picked this guy up And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Along with everyone in your household. Paul would later formalize this and he would send it in a letter to a group of Christians in Rome. Take a look at what he wrote. He said, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That it's not about going to church every Sunday. It's not about getting baptized. It's not about getting confirmed. It's not about having your first communion. All good things, none of which save you from your sin, which in a way is a relief, isn't it? Because if we had to do things and work our way to to God to make things right, we would never know if we've done enough. That we might go to our deathbeds with a gnawing doubt about what's going to happen after that last breath and that last heartbeat. And yet, Jesus provides a way that we can know that we know that we know 
that we and God are good. And Paul articulates it right here for us. And in that moment, that pagan jailer becomes a Christian. Now, according to the scripture, it seems that he takes Paul and Silas back to his house. It says that they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. It's like 2 a.m. These guys are preaching Jesus in this pagan house. I mean, it's quite a scene. And every single person in that house, all the family members become Christians. Now, I think we read this and a lot of times we think, it's like, do they really though? I mean, a conversion that fast, that it can, like, can we really believe that that happened so quickly? Well, take a look at how fast the Holy Spirit began to work in the life of that jailer. It says, even at that hour, 2, 3 a.m. at this point, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. I mean, this is the man who hours earlier was punishing them. He might have been the very person who was beating them with wooden rods, and now he's tending to the very wounds that he, that he inflicted. Now, I have to imagine, I mean, in my own imagination, that as Paul was being washed by this man, as this guy was washing away the dirt and the dust and the blood, I have to imagine that Paul pointed to this imagery and began teaching him about what baptism is. Well, the jailer was ready for it. It says, then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. Just like Paul was immediately baptized. I got to be honest with you. The more that I read this journey of Paul, the more I am convicted about how churches handle baptisms. I've been a part of meetings where Christian leadership began to look at baptism candidates and they would actually question the person's worthiness to be baptized. And it wasn't about whether they know Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. It was, well, you know what? They curse a little bit too much. You know, they're still living with that person and they're not married to them. Who are we to decide how much sin a person can have in their life before they can go public with their faith in Jesus Christ, before they can proclaim to the world what Jesus Christ has done in their life. That's why here at DHC, our baptism checklist, real short. You believe in Jesus? Yeah, dunk them. Get them in the water, okay? Because we want to get their story out there so it impacts other people and it brings glory to God. So the story wraps up. It says the jailer brought them into his house now sets a meal before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. Roughly 15 years after the crucifixion, 6,000 miles away from Jerusalem, in the midst of a pagan city, in the middle of the night, the gospel was working. Lives were changing, and the world was beginning to turn the right way. And a Roman jailer and his family were celebrating because for the first time in their life, they know the Savior of the world. So, what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it's your first time here at DHC, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So one of the greatest truths that this story teaches us is that God is in control. Think about 
the events that took place in, in this story today. They endured false accusations, severe beatings, false imprisonments. I mean, their life was out of their control. And yet we know, as someone who's reading it now, we know that God was in control the whole time. And he was using their circumstances for his glory. Paul never knew what was going to happen. He never knew what the future held. But because he knew that God was in control, it allowed him to be able to sing in the night. And it may have been that very song that brought an entire family to Jesus. So where are you right now? What's going on in your life right now? Things seem out of control. Certainly the world does. Let's remember that when it's out of our control, it's still in his. And he makes us a promise that when you say yes to Jesus, at that point, God will work everything in your life out for your good. Everything. And for his glory. So let's not lose hope. Let's keep singing. Lastly, I would challenge every single one of you to live a magnetic life. Okay, this jailer was impressed by Paul and Silas because they showed him love. He was impressed by them because they showed joy in the midst of an awful circumstance. He, he, was, he, he saw them praising their God in spite of a very bleak situation. And he wanted what they had. So as we live our lives, let's choose to live in such a way that our faith is magnetic, that it just draws people to us, that they want what we have. And one day when they finally come up to you and they say, hey, let me ask you a question. Why are you so different? I mean, you got all this going on in your life and yet I see joy or I see peace. What's going on? That'll give you the opportunity to tell them about how Jesus changed your life. So let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we could come here today. I want to thank you, Lord, that this story has been preserved for 2,000 years, God. Because I think ultimately, Lord, it allows us to see that you are in control of our lives, even when things look bleak. I pray, God, that as, as we go about our week, that we would pay attention to the people on our path, that we would be able to minister to the people that are right next to us because, Lord, they are watching and they are listening. And I pray, Lord, that our life could preach the name of Jesus. We ask all this in your name. Amen.